Blog Talk Hello. Radio. Hello, everyone. Welcome to an all-new episode of the AJ Bruno Show. Uh, we're doing one of those special interviews today. I will try to get to some of the questions that some of you submitted. Um, if you want, you're free to call into the show, but I don't know if we'll have time to get to the phones today. Anyway, my guest is Scott Walter. He is a forensic geologist and historian, host of such shows as Histories, America on Earth, and Pirate Treasure of the Knights Templar. And I'm happy to welcome him today. I believe we have him on the line now. Scott, hello. Hey, AJ. How are you? I'm okay. How are you? Good, good. Great. Um, well, let's uh, get right into it. I First, I was curious, uh, what made you originally want to pursue forensic geology, and how did, uh, how did human history get tied into that? Well, um, I mean, I've been involved in uh, forensic science for <laughs> over 30 years now. I, I started uh, pretty much right out of college uh, working in the construction industry, looking at, um, you know, problem concrete failures, um, and issues, uh, low strength, cracking, concrete, um, and failures and things like that. So I've been, and I continue to do that. I've been working all through, um, you know, the the TV stuff that I've done. But um, I, I was busy with that for about uh, 15 years uh, until the, the Kensington Runestone came into my lab. That's really where things went in a different direction, and it was completely unexpected. I had never heard of the runestone prior to that, and, um, you know, it was an interesting story, but we get involved in a lot of interesting cases that, that have nothing to do with history or uh, runestones or controversial history or anything like that, but but it was the runestone that really took it in a different direction, and it was it was unexpected from the standpoint of they wanted me to help them try to understand if the inscription from a geological standpoint uh, was old uh, and weathered. And so that's what I focused my attention on, and after comparing the weathering with tombstones of known age, I concluded that it was indeed hundreds of years old, and therefore... Uh, it could not be the late 19th century hoax that everybody had claimed and and that it had to be genuine. And and, <laughs> and then the backlash from that conclusion, which was surprising and, and disappointing, but it, what it did is it launched me into this, into this new field of study, this historical mysteries, uh, investigating uh, those things. That, that's what started it. Hmm. That's uh, definitely interesting. I, I'm, Pretty familiar with the the runestone myself, but um, I'm wondering why do you think the Knights Templar came to the New World, and what made them enter that far west? Well, um, I mean, the whole idea of the Templars is something that you know people go, "How did you get going on that?" And the simple answer is, is I followed the evidence trail. I mean, that's that's what we do in the forensic field. Is you you compile the evidence and you 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 go where it takes you and and it was really a, a pretty straight line that took me to the templars um and i should say when i say the templars that's that's the group that everybody thinks about but you got to remember there were um their brethren and the ones that uh, officially created them were the uh, the white monks called the cistercians 
Uh, they were led by Bernard de Clairvaux back in the early part of the 12th century. He was the one that wrote the charter for the Knights Templars. So when you talk about the Templars, you really, you know, they were Cistercian monks as well. The only difference was is they served a different function within the order, and, and, and they were the ones that, <laughs> you know, get all the headlines today, but people forget about their brethren that were a very important part of, of the operation. But uh, once you, once you well, well, once I started to study their history and what actually happened uh, after the put-down of 1307, when the Templars and the Cistercians were really at the height of their of their power and success and influence over Europe, I think uh, their enemies realized, and their enemies were the monarchs of Europe and the Roman Catholic Church, realized that if they didn't do something to, you know, undermine uh, these, you know, these orders, that they were going to take over Europe. And, you know, you don't hear too many historians talking about that because I don't think they really understand what was going on. This was... Uh, essentially the greatest coup d'etat in history that people are just now starting to figure out. And so the the best way, the most effective way to undermine them, um, and of course, you know, King Philip the Fair was uh, was heavily indebted to the Templars, and uh, the Church had their own reasons for supporting him. So, you know, by bringing down the Templars, the guys with the swords, you really cut... The Achilles from the uh, this giant that that was the Cistercians and the Templar orders that were um, at the height of their success. So yeah, that was very effective. But you know, I think the the problem that that we have historically and 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 working on pirate treasure of the Knights Templar really helped me understand something. I guess I already knew, but didn't really fully appreciate was how the Templars continued on after 1307. It was hardly the end. It was really the beginning of a new chapter. And so uh, in Portugal, for example, where we spent a lot of time on the new show, we came to realize that they were very, very uh, busy in uh, in the Indian Ocean, um, establishing um, settlements and colonies in India and in the Far East and Madagascar, and they were making a ton of money. And they were traveling all over the world, including North America. But North America was very important because, in the end, they saw that as their sanctuary, the place where they could, and they knew about this for a long time prior to the put-down, and and really uh, for hundreds, if not uh, over a thousand years, these families knew about North America, South America, Central America, but ultimately they knew that their plan in Europe wasn't going to materialize, so they turned their attention to the New World. And the runestone, for example, was a land claim. And it was placed at the headwaters of uh, uh, the major rivers and on our continent, and it was to establish this land claim, which, ironically, if you look at the land claim, it's pretty much the same as the Louisiana Purchase. And the fact that we purchased that land from France and that the Cistercians and the Templars' home base was in France, uh, I don't think that's a coincidence. That um, certainly makes sense. But uh, since the Portuguese order, the, um, the Order of Christ, I believe it's called, uh, yep, survived. Yep, the Order of Christ. What, yeah, I mean, there's um, different groups now that claim to be Templars, but I don't think they have any actual 
true connection. So at what point did it did it fade out, or what exactly do you think happened? Well, the, the, the Order of Christ, a.k.a. the Knights Templar Order, continued as an official order in Portugal until 1835. They were not put down until until then officially when the king and queen of Portugal um, disbanded the order. So they went on for another 500 years. <clears throat> and that, that's incredible if you think about it. But again, you know, when you talk about the Templars and, and these pseudo-orders and all of this, you have to understand that at the core of all of this is you're talking about a group of people, a group of families and their supporters who had ideological differences between the Roman Catholic Church, and, and the monarchies of Europe. I mean, this was the fundamental issue that was in play here. And so ideology is something that, I mean, we see playing out uh, different ideologies fighting against each other. I mean, that's what's happening in the Middle East right now. It's been going on forever, uh, religious ideology specifically. By the way, A.J., <clears throat> Did you did you notice the the coincidence that these Paris attacks took place on Friday the thirteenth? You know, I actually I didn't notice that, but that's that is strange. I don't think that's a coincidence either, hmm. because if you look back historically, um, Paris was where the um, the Grand Priory was, the home base of the Knights Templar for you know for over 200 years eventually their castle or their <clears throat> commandery was destroyed but it was in paris france and who were the primary enemies of the templars historically the muslims <laughs> and so you know they fought for for hundreds of years uh, against against uh, against the templars and again it was an ideological uh, war. Now, some people will say they were fighting for the church. Well, they certainly were, and Roman Catholicism would have been uh, their enemy as well. But I think there's 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 more that's going on here. I think the Muslims uh, understand more about what was really going on at that time than I think even people today do. Now, that doesn't doesn't uh, make them smarter or anything. It's just that people have turned a blind eye to this for other political and religious reasons. But there's there's no way in my mind that Paris attacks were a coincidence happening on Friday the 13th. <clears throat> no, the date uh, definitely suggests otherwise. Um, so do, do you think that the Templars brought certain artifacts, the uh, Holy Grail, Ark of the Covenant, they're probably in the U.S. or somewhere in the New World somewhere? or what's your Well, if, if I were a betting man, I would say probably. Now, there's, there's some people that believe that there are many Ark of the Covenants, but, um, you know, I would, I would venture to guess that there's probably one that's revered above the others. And if the Templars did establish, well, they did establish the new sanctuary and their ideological descendants, the, the founding fathers, um, finished the job, <clears throat> I would say that there's probably a lot of relics here. I don't think they're on Oak Island. They may have been at one time, but they were, they were moved. I mean, the Templars aren't stupid. They don't leave their stuff laying around for people, <laughs> people to find. <laughs> Nothing against the Lagina brothers. I mean, they're, they seem like good guys, but... Um, there's nothing going on at Oak Island today, um, in my opinion. But, you know, maybe yeah. they'll prove us wrong. Some, 
Some people think the uh, um, Ethiopian Orthodox Church has it, but I'm not sure about that. Say again? Some people I'm believe sorry. the Ethiopian Orthodox Church has the Ark. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, mm. they might indeed have one of the Arks uh, that mm. um, are out there. I mean, the other thing that could be going on here, I don't know if I necessarily believe this, but I think some people have suggested that the reason that there's more than one Ark of the Covenant is to, uh, you know, keep people off the trail of, of where the real Ark is. But I, 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 I'm not really sure what's going on there, but if, if there is uh, the Ark out there somewhere... Um, I think it probably is in this country. That's my guess. I don't think it's in the Grand Canyon, even though we spend time looking for it there. But um, I don't know. I guess if I was a betting man and we could know the answer, I'd put my money on North America. <laughs> well, I'm I'm curious about your other show, uh, America on Earth. A number of the topics uh, had to deal with Europeans or Egyptians um, being in somewhere in the U.S. in uh, mm -hmm. ancient or medieval times. How strongly do you feel about that being a likelihood? Oh, I think that's definitely, um, I don't think it's a, a possibility. I think it's a certainty. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's one of those things that it, it's difficult to prove, but I think there's plenty of evidence here that's, that suggests that there were cultures that were coming here to North America for thousands of years. And, you know, it's funny, I, I have uh, many uh, friends who are with various Native American tribes here in, in North America, and there are a number of elders and, and people within the tribe that, that say, yeah, we know all about the people that came here in the distant past. This is part of our history. But then there are some Native Americans. I, I heard from one on Twitter last night who was accusing me of being racist for suggesting that ancient cultures came to North America as if I'm somehow suggesting on the show that <clears throat> many of the things that are found here that point to ancient cultures coming here is somehow racist against Native Americans. And I just don't understand that. That's typically an academic response that uh, is a way of trying to you know, um, dismiss what we're doing. And, and, of course, when they can't dismiss, you know, the work that we're doing with any evidence, they, they attack us personally. And, of course, nobody wants to be called a racist. So this is something they think is going to be effective. And and uh, I just don't play that way. I'm not, I'm not going to mm -hmm. put up with that crap for two seconds because uh, <laughs> I, I don't believe that I have uh, a racist at all. In fact, I think uh, I've never suggested that, certain things were done by Europeans because Native Americans couldn't do them. <clears throat> I've suggested Europeans did them because Native Americans said they did not do them. So hmm. if they didn't do them, and, and I pointed out <clears throat> to one person on Twitter, I said, well, okay, are you suggesting that Native Americans carved these rune stones, that they built the Newport Tower, that they were the ones that built Stonehenge, and many of these uh, astronomical chambers that we find here in this country, we have asked them specifically, and they said, we didn't do that. So is that racist? <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> no. um, so you'd say the Salutrian hypothesis, that would be true? Well, I think there's a lot of evidence that, that suggests that's true. Uh, here again, I don't think that's racist. I think the evidence suggests that there were uh, that there was a European culture 
dating back maybe as far as 22 to 25,000 years ago when there was glacial ice in the North Atlantic that would have allowed them to follow the edge of the ice chasing after seal herds and, uh, and other food sources uh, into what is now North America. I, I, don't, I don't know why that's some heretical idea. I mean, to me, it makes perfect sense. Uh, according to scholars like Dennis Stanford at the uh, Smithsonian Institution, um, he has evidence in the form of uh, Salutrian-style points and uh, geologically certain types of flint that uh, don't occur here in North America that are well-known sources in Europe. So what's the problem? <laughs> I mean, why is this a problem? I mean... To me, it's like, okay, it's an interesting hypothesis. Let's take a look at it. But unfortunately, there are a lot of scholars out there that, for some reason, this is heresy, that, <clears throat> you know, it was the Clovis was, was it, and uh, anybody who uh, suggests otherwise is, is a heretic. I just don't understand that thinking. Um, science uh, is always open to new ideas, new evidence, and things are changing all the time. My gosh, all you have to do is read the newspapers and new studies are coming out all the time talking about this is good for your health, coffee is bad, wine is good, wine is bad, sugar is good, sugar is bad, eggs are good. I mean, it just goes on and on. But the point is is that science is constantly evolving. It's constantly changing. Um, but yet there apparently there are certain subjects in academia where they just have a different set of rules, and, and I don't agree with that. Sure, you'd think they'd want to consider all possibilities, but... Um... Well, there's, you'd think so, but in many cases, some of these people, and I emphasize the word some, because I'm not putting everybody in the same basket, and I'm not painting all scholars and academics with the same brush, but some of these people have their, their heads clearly buried in the sand. They're protecting their old theses, and they're trying to, uh, to they're resistant to change, and uh, this is not how science works, and... I think many of these people, and I've said this many times, are more interested in being right than getting the right answer. And that is, that's just not the way it should be. <clears throat> that's true. Um, if uh, you had to pick one accepted mainstream aspect of our history that you'd wait to be on, that's incorrect. Would you say it would be this in general, or is there something specific? Well, I mean, I, I, I really don't think anybody seriously thinks that Christopher Columbus discovered anything. <laughs> I mean, he, he really yeah. didn't. I mean, first of all, he never set foot on the continent. There were tens of millions of people already living here. The whole notion of Columbus from the get-go discovering America was ridiculous. But yet that is still something that we we talk about today. I mean, it's it's – and we have Columbus Day uh, – well, it's it's starting to change. I mean, many states are are uh, adopting uh, Indigenous Peoples uh, Day, which I think is a great idea. <clears throat> but um, that would probably be one of them. But um, <clears throat> there's a bunch. I mean, there are just a, a whole bunch of things here that are problematic that I think really are starting to change. And and one of them is uh, this problem with uh, certain certain members of academia, specifically in, in soft science disciplines like history, like language, like anthropology, like archaeology. Uh, many people don't even realize that these are not hard science disciplines, 
but but the way some of these people operate again i say some um it's easy to see that they're not hard science disciplines because it shows in, in, in the way they conduct themselves and the way that they do their research. <clears throat> well, it's part of, it's a big part of the reason we have this problem. Yeah. No, I've, I've definitely, definitely noticed that. Um, I guess if someone produces evidence that upends the whole historical narrative, then maybe they're afraid of what happens then. So. <clears throat> well, I think that's part of it. Again, I think uh, all of a sudden, you know, uh, what many of these people have built their careers on suddenly would just go out the window, and they're fearful, and and they're they're protective, and they're defensive, and 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 th- these are natural human reactions to to things that happen to us that we that we we don't like. <laughs> so, um, but I guess on one hand, uh, yes, I, I guess that would be considered a threat, but on the other hand, it's an opportunity. And, and I would love to see more people <clears throat> like Dennis Stanford jump on these opportunities to, uh, I mean, there, there's all kinds of new doors that are open by some of the things that we talk about on our shows. And it'd be great to see some of these uh, academics walk through those doors and, and realize mm-hmm. these opportunities and make a name for themselves and in, in, in getting the history right. I mean, the bottom line is, is, is let's just get it right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, that that makes sense. Um, actually, with the, the time we have left, I want to get to specifically your involvement uh, with history. I was curious, uh, how did how did your involvement with them first begin? Well, the, the first thing <clears throat> that we did with History Channel was we made a documentary that I guess aired yesterday or the day before, because I always get uh, a flood of emails after uh, either the show or the documentaries air. And that was something that was an outgrowth of our, our uh, research on the runestones and the Newport Tower and uh, things that we did over in Europe. And uh, I was approached by uh, uh, Andy and Maria Oz with Committee Films, and they said, hey, this would make a great documentary. Let's, let's, let's put one together. And so we did, and they just followed the trail that, uh, that I had you know, taken and uh, – the documentary that that uh, that came out of that did very well. I, I think it was one of of the most successful, if not the most <clears throat> successful documentary that history's ever done, and it continues to air. And it, I think, the reason that it was successful is because it resonated with a lot of people that what we were we were you know showing in, in the show was true. It, it just resonated with them that there was something real about it, and there is. So that's really where it started, and then there was another documentary that was put together called Who Really Discovered America, and then basically approached me and said, hey, do you think we could do a series? Is there enough material here? And I laughed, and I said, absolutely, and that's what uh, that's what became America Unearthed. Hmm. Now, is there one particular mystery you've done on the show so far that um, really stands out to you as the, the most intriguing? <clears throat> You know that's tough because there there are there are a lot of things that we did that I thought were were great and uh, demanded further investigation. Um, I would have to say that I love the Roanoke episode and the Dare Stones, which were something that up until I first walked into um, that museum and I looked at those artifacts, I had never heard of them, 
and I was very intrigued by what I saw. And unfortunately, I didn't have any time to do any in-depth analysis. I only had a few hours with the artifacts, but I spent some time with them, and they were very intriguing. And there's some follow-up work that I would love to do on them that I think could perhaps shed new light. Now, I know there was another uh, short series that was done, I think a two-hour special, with um, the guys that did the giant show, and uh, I didn't watch it, but I heard about it, and uh, it didn't sound like they pushed the ball down the field too much further, but I I think we could, if we did a follow-up on that, I, I would love to do that. There's some really good science that we could do, but you know what? I'd have to say if I had to pick one, it would have to be the Tucson-led artifacts that were found in the 1920s. Uh, Those artifacts are incredible. They date back to the 8th and 9th centuries A.D., and they were found in a pristine archaeological context. It was well-documented, and they're 100% genuine, and they open up an incredible new chapter of American history in the Southwest of a European culture that came to North America. And I would love to do some more work on that story. We just didn't have time, but uh, it was really, it was really uh, a thrill to be able to tell the grandson of Thomas Bent, who was one of the two guys that worked on those uh, artifacts back in the 1920s, that these were absolutely genuine artifacts. And, and it's it's interesting the parallels that their family went through. Uh, you know, just like the Olaf Oman family and their descendants that went through all the ridicule and criticism, um, you know, after he found the Kensington runestone. And it was great to be able to tell them that they're absolutely genuine, just like the, the runestone's genuine. Mm-hmm. Sure. And um, Roanoke, uh, you mentioned that. That's one in particular that always left me puzzled. What exactly do you think happened with that colony? Well, <clears throat> to say that I know for sure uh, would not be correct because I don't know for sure what happens. But, but the uh, the dare stones, some of them that I think could be could be genuine, and there's a lot of questions about those. That's why I think they need to be studied more because what's at stake I think is very important. Um, but it, they tell the story that Eleanor Dare uh, survived, and she likely. Uh, was taken by one of the local native tribes. Uh, she may have married uh, one of the chiefs. She may have had some additional children and uh, lived uh, for some years after the Roanoke uh, colony was abandoned. So I think that story is, if that's true, is an incredible story. And uh, there are some avenues of investigation that could be pursued. And I, I think it be a great story. I mean, regardless of what the outcome is, if it turns out that the artifacts are not genuine, well, then they're not genuine. But uh, at least the question is answered. But I, I think the, the the possibility of what the story could be absolutely needs to be vetted out. And I think geology could play a very important role in answering some of those questions. And the rest of the colony, think they were killed, went back to Europe, or... Oh, they didn't go back to Europe. I mean, they basically disappeared. Um, Personally, I think most of them probably were killed, but I think some of them survived. I think Eleanor Dare survived. I think the the first stone that was found, I mean, all indications are that it's genuine. I don't think there's any reason to... uh, to question that one, no, no legitimate reasons to question it. 
<clears throat> but the uh, the subsequent stones that were found, um, do they uh, are they genuine? Do they tell the story of what happened to her and maybe some of the others? Uh, I think they could. Um, I'm not mm-hmm. saying for sure, but uh, it, uh, they absolutely need to be followed up on. Sure. Um, at the the end of the the pirate treasure of the the Knights Templar program, there was an artifact you were going to study more. I was curious, and since the show is aired, is there any new that new developments on that? Um, which which artifact are you talking about? Are you talking uh, about some of the artifacts that Barry Clifford found? Yes, it was it was one of the artifacts he found in Madagascar. Uh, do you remember which one it was? Because there, there were a number of artifacts and. There were several that uh, would be nice to follow up on. Do you remember which one? I remember specifically. Um, I know at the end of the show you were discussing it. Uh, there was an inscription you were trying to. Dis- oh, sorry. It was the the map. It was Captain Kidd's map. His instructions oh. on how to find the treasure. Yeah, that one. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> oh, you're talking about the 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 uh, ciphered message that was. Uh, <clears throat> I don't think it was C- Captain Kidd. Yes. It was uh, Labou's. The booze, yes. Yeah, with uh, uh, the Flaming Cross of Goa and the treasure that was taken uh, from the Portuguese ship that, that left uh, Goa in the 1720s. Um, no, we have not followed up on that. That's, a, that's a, a, a box cipher. It's a Masonic box cipher code that has some strange characters. And, but it is funny that you, you, you bring up these uh, ciphers and these coded uh, messages because I've actually uh, I'm actually working on something right now. <clears throat> there is a treasure trove of uh, manuscripts that have been published dating back to uh, the 1300s that have many of the uh, mysterious characters that scholars said never existed and were not used and so on and so forth in various inscriptions found here in North America. And it turns out these manuscripts, which were just published this past year online, absolutely prove that these things did exist and were in use. And, you know, it's it's going to be interesting now because uh, I'm in the midst of writing a paper. Another uh, researcher is writing a paper about some of the findings in these manuscripts. And <clears throat> they basically refute directly what some of these scholars have said. And so it'll be interesting to see how they respond to this. Um, I mean, in, in, in a perfect world, they would see this evidence and say, hey, you know what? Uh, I have to take another look at this. And, you know, who's going to blame them for saying that? But if I was a betting man, I would say that they will either ignore them or they will try to find a way to maintain their position when the obvious uh, that's in conflict with that is contrary to that is staring him in the face. But we'll see what happens. I mean, we'll give him an opportunity to respond. But um, the point is, is that there's all kinds of secret coded alphabets, and unless you have the key word or you have the the code, the code key, they're almost impossible to decipher. You need you need sophistic, sophisticated computer programs that can go through and uh, and test these things because they're, I'll tell you what, they did a good job of concealing their communication. I hope there's one that can. I'm curious what it says. So. Oh, uh, me um. too. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Is uh, Finally, is there a new season of America on Earth coming up or are there any other major projects you can tell us about? Well, we, <clears throat> you know, what happened with America on Earth 
<clears throat> excuse me, um, is H. Well, first of all, I think people need to understand that cable ratings in general are down um, significantly. I mean, last year they were talking about 40%. I don't know what it is this year, but um, that's significant. And so what happened was uh, H2 was sold to Vice. And at the end of this year, my understanding is it will it will be done. So that's about a month away. And so our show was the number one show on the network. And but if the station's going away, there's no reason to, to continue. So <clears throat> now all of a sudden history has all these programs and they have to decide what are they going to air. And as it sits right now, I don't know if they're going to do America on Earth or not. So um, America on Earth is still alive. They didn't cancel it, but we are, um, you know, we're waiting to see if it's going to continue. I can tell you that there's plenty of things. We had another season all teed up, ready to go. And I'm hopeful we'll be able to uh, to continue with that. There's some great stuff. In fact, I think the best stuff we we had not looked at yet. So uh, I'm optimistic that we'll hear something soon. But as it sits right now, um, we're in a holding pattern. Oh well, I know they just changed History International H2 a few years ago. So the fact that they're selling it is surprising to me. So. Well, you know what? I mean, the reality of life is that the world is changing. And, you know, the way people watch television, especially young people, is different than it was when I grew up. Um, They don't want to watch commercials. They don't want to wait until 8 o'clock on Saturday night to watch their favorite show. Um, And the other thing is they like to binge watch three, four, five episodes in a row. I like to do that, too. And quite frankly, I think... Um, they should have that opportunity. Why not? So uh, people are watching television. They're streaming shows when they want to watch them, and they don't. They they they, they don't want to watch commercials. And so the old way of of uh, cable television is really going the way of the passenger pigeon. Now the good news is is that the demand for for quality content is higher than it's ever been. So there will be shows made. Uh, I think that this. You know, the subject matter that we deal with is something that a lot of people are interested in. And so I'm, I'm confident uh, we'll be doing, you know, more with that. But what's changing is how it's going to be delivered. And <clears throat> so I think the, uh, the cable channels have to uh, change with the times or they're going to they're going to die. Hmm. I mean, that's uh, that's too bad. Personally, I find your shows reminiscent of kind of a modern day Indiana Jones. So I'd much rather see that than some of the reality shows they put on now. So, well, I have to say, uh, AJ, that I agree with you, but, um, you know, everybody likes different things. And so I think it's, it's great that people have the opportunity to watch whatever it is they want. But I think, um, I think there's a lot more people that are, uh, I, I think there's a lot of people out there that if you give them, uh, something interesting, something intellectually stimulating and challenging, they will respond to it and they will enjoy that. I mean, I like mindless television too, <laughs> once in a while, <laughs> but I also like to have something that, that forces me to think. And um, so I, I I think we'll see that continue. I really do. Okay. Well, uh, thanks so much for joining us today. It was a, it was a pleasure. Oh, great. Well, listen, thanks for having me on. It's always good to, uh, 
you know, to get the message out there. And, and, and I appreciate the opportunity, AJ. So thanks for having me. Thank you. All right. Talk to you later. All right. Bye. Later. Bye. All right, everyone. That was Scott Walter. Uh, interesting conversation. We didn't really have time to get to calls, but uh, thanks so much for listening. Until next time, this is AJ Bruno, the AJ Bruno Show, signing off.